then we should know what kind of insights we should attain or asked differently with the practice of vipassana meditation what kind of insights can we get for this we just need to look at the word vipassana it's a word from the pali and it is a compound word vi and pasana pasana means um, to see clearly uh, or to realize and vi this is translated in this context as various or manifold and in the commentaries it is explained what various or manifold actually means to what it refers it is said that it refers to the various general characteristics or actually to the three general characteristics the buddha saw he realized that all conditioned phenomena are subject to three characteristics they are common to all conditioned phenomena each physical process every material unit as well as every mental process every mental state they are all subject to these three characteristics first of all all conditioned phenomena are impermanent they are fleeting and they do not last a long time they are not eternal they are constantly changing and they never remain the same for two consecutive moments all things are impermanent once they have arisen they are subject to dissolution or to disappearance because all conditioned things are impermanent or changing all the time so they cannot be the basis for permanent happiness the impermanent nature of things is actually unsatisfactory it's actually suffering because we cannot hold on to anything even if we try to hold on to things it's not possible things change they dissolve they vanish it's like uh, trying to hold sand in your hand but as you're trying to hold it actually the sand flows out between your fingers so this unsatisfactoriness or this suffering 
is the second of these three general characteristics. The fact that things are impermanent and changing, as well as they are unsatisfactory and suffering, implies that we have no absolute control over these things. We do not have the power to make them long-lasting or to last forever. If we had the power to do so, then we would things we like, we want, we would make them last a long, long time, forever. But as our life and our experience shows, we don't have this absolute control. We don't have the power to control the body, the mind, or external things. And on top of that, we also come to see that there is actually nothing in this body or in this mind which lasts forever. There is no such thing as a solid entity which we would call I or ego or self or soul. So because there is no such a thing as a permanently lasting I or ego or soul, there is no power, no control over this bodily and mental phenomena. And this is the so-called impersonal nature of things. This impersonality is the third of the general characteristics. So today I will talk about the first of these three general characteristics, about impermanence or change, instability. In Pali, this is called anicca. Nature is constantly displaying the impermanent nature of things. We can see that very well, like today, in the morning it was sunny and warm, and then in the afternoon we had this strong rain. And now again, the rain has stopped and the sun is out again, just behind you, having the setting sun, casting this warm yellowish light here in the cinema hall. Or we also can see the constant change in the change of the seasons, for example. Maybe here in Malaysia, the seasons, the change of them is not so distinct, but where I grew up in Switzerland, we definitely had four distinct seasons, spring, summer, autumn, and winter. Or this change is displayed in the tides. Or we can see it in the change of the moon, 
changing from full moon to half moon, new moon, and then again um, the moon is waxing, growing in shape. So change we can see all around us. Nature is displaying it constantly. So we can see it with our own eyes and we also can experience it in our body. Changes are also happening over longer spans of time. These kind of changes are barely noticeable for us. Seemingly very solid and hard things such as rocks, they change over many, many, many years. For example, a mountain, for us, it might look the same all our life, but if we would be living for thousands or millions of years, then we would even notice that the form and shape of seemingly solid mountains change. Rivers, mountain rivers and creeks, over the time of many thousands and millions of years, they um, cut into the mountain, they form deep valleys or uh, chasms. Even mountains have not existed all the time, since times immemorial. For example, in Switzerland, we have the Alps, seemingly a very solid and firm formation of rocks. But history tells us that the Alps has not existed forever, a long, long time ago, the area, which is now Switzerland, France, Italy, Germany, Austria, was the bed of an ocean. And then the ocean was lifted and pulled upward and folded. And so with that, the mountains, the Alps, were created. And even our Earth, the planet Earth, is said not to have existed uh, forever. On the one hand, there is the theory of the Big Bang, which says that this Earth, this universe, came into existence at once with a Big Bang. In the Buddhist philosophy, however, it is said that there is actually no beginning of this earth or this universe. In the Buddhist scriptures, we can read about uncountable world periods in uncountable universes which exist in boundless space. This is quite difficult for us to imagine. Even if we have a very good 
imagination, but still this kind of time span is really hard to fathom, to imagine. So to give us a small idea or hint about the duration of this incredibly long time span, the Buddha used a simple analogy. He said, imagine a huge mountain, the biggest mountain on earth, and now a tiny little bird comes every 100 year, years to sharpen its beak on the mountain. So now the time it takes to wear down this huge mountain by this little bird, this is still shorter than the time span of one world period. Change, impermanence or instability of things is an undeniable fact. Actually, we do not have to go so far. We only need to look at our own life. So, for example, the person who we are today is not anymore the child from before. I think all of you can agree to this. Our outer appearance has changed. Our opinions and views may have changed over the years. Our outlook on the world has also changed. It's not the same anymore as we looked at the world when we were five or ten. And even within one day, we can uh, notice change, change in our body, for example. In the morning, when we get, get up, our body may feel heavy and without any energy. But then, in the evening, our body feels light and is full of energy. Or a happy feeling that arose in the morning as we were talking to a very dear friend on the phone, that happy feeling disappeared as soon as our boss said something that we didn't want to hear. And when we practice meditation, these changes become even more apparent. We see that the physical and mental processes are constantly changing, that they never stay the same for a long time, or not even for two moments. First of all, these changes become obvious in the body. They are more distinct there. At the beginning of a sitting meditation, our body feels comfortable, at ease. But already after a short while, the body might not feel so comfortable anymore. A little ache here, a little pain there, 
some stiffening over there. So the feel, feeling of ease from the beginning has shifted, it has changed and has made room to some uncomfortableness. And when we are uh, mindful and look at the mental processes, we see and realize that the mental states, the processes in the mind are changing at an even faster rate. A thought pops up, says a little bit, and then disappears. An emotion comes up, takes the grip of our mind, but then again dissolves and is not there anymore. Sometimes it can happen that all of a sudden, out of the blue, a mental image pops up, something that we haven't even thought about, but here it is, this mental image. And as suddenly as it has come, it might disappear again, just like that. So, when we attentively and mindfully observe all these mental and physical phenomena, the characteristic of impermanence, of change, of instability, will become apparent. We cannot deny it anymore. So we come to see that actually every process that has arisen in the body or in the mind disappears after a certain time. It dissolves and vanishes. And once it has disappeared, then it's gone forever. It doesn't come up again. Even if we think that the painful sensation that we had in the previous sitting was coming up again, if we think, oh, again, the same pain, it's not the same pain anymore. The pain from the last sitting has gone, has vanished dissolved completely. What you experience now in this sitting is another pain, a new pain. We know that maybe a feeling of joy and happiness of the last that we had last week, where is it now? Can you get it back? The same feeling? You can't. Maybe what you can is to recall that feeling and then uh, have the remembrance of that feeling. But the actual feeling of joy, you cannot get back. It has gone, it has disappeared forever. So, in the meditation practice, when we observe, let's say, physical sensations in the body, maybe then they turn to pain. And when we observe this pain, when we are patient enough, then we might see that after a certain time, this pain slowly dissolves or becomes less, 
gets weaker and finally disappears. So we see that even an unpleasant sensation like pain that we normally avoid or change the posture or get up, that even that is not something permanent or everlasting. And when we look a bit closer with better concentration, sharper mindfulness, we can see that this painful sensation is actually changing maybe from quite a diffuse, widespread painful sensation, it gathers to a smaller area until finally there is just one little very painful point. Or maybe then the pain um, disperses and takes up quite a big area. Or we can observe that the pain grows in intensity, becomes very strong, very fierce, almost unbearable. But we might also be able to observe the weakening of the strong, painful sensation until it actually has completely disappeared. Sometimes meditators even experience that very strong, painful sensation which is there and throbbing and being very, very strong that all of a sudden it's like boom, a big explosion and with that the pain is completely gone, completely dissolved into nothing. So with the practice of Vipassana meditation we can develop the eye of wisdom in such a way that observing mental and physical phenomena, our mind, our mindfulness becomes um, like a microscope, seeing things more clearly, being able uh, to see more details, seeing more subtle things. And in the course of the practice, when our practice matures, it even becomes like an electronic microscope where we can really see very minute changes, very subtle details, which are normally not visible to an ordinary untrained mind. So with this, with this clear seeing, then we are able to see things as they truly are. And so this is insight. This leads to understanding and wisdom. What the Buddha discovered more than 2,500 years ago was the fact that nothing lasts longer than the split of a second. And actually, this has been found true and is confirmed by modern scientists, at least on the material uh, level. Many years ago, scientists find out that the smallest material unit 
that there was this so-called smallest material unit and they called it atom. Atom is a word from the Greek language and it actually means indivisible, something that cannot be divided anymore. So the smallest material unit, that's the atom. But then later, <coughs> with better instruments, they found out that the atom was not the smallest material unit, but that an atom actually consists of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And again, later on, they had to discover that even the protons or the neutrons, the electrons, weren't the smallest indivisible material unit, but they discovered that protons, the neutrons, the electrons were made up of even smaller material units. And so they called that them quarks. And so then for some time scientists believed to have found the smallest material units which are unchangeable, indivisible. But again, with more sophisticated instruments and machines, they made a discovery that even the so-called quarks are not stable or solid material units. But even the quarks, they are subject to change. They saw them coming into existence and disappearing and coming into existence and disappearing again. So, as I said, on the material level, modern scientists have come to the same conclusion what the Buddha saw and realized 2,500 years ago. What the Buddha discovered, his discovery led to wisdom and led him to um, overcoming suffering. Unfortunately, we cannot say that from our modern scientists. Their discoveries are mere intellectual discoveries which do not have the power to bring about such a radical inner transformation. The Buddha saw that these mental physical phenomena were arising and disappearing many, many, many times within one second, within one moment. And one moment uh, is defined as the time it takes to snap your finger or the time it takes to blink your eyes. Or another nice comparison that we can find in the scriptures is the time that it takes to pull a cow's udder when you milk a cow. So, material phenomena arise and disappear millions of times within one moment. And the Buddha saw that the mental phenomena were arising and disappearing even much faster. It said that 
the moment it takes for a material phenomena to arise and disappear, in that time span, mental phenomena, a mental phenomena arises and disappears 17 times. So mental phenomena are 17 times faster than physical phenomena. This happens on a very, very subtle level and so it's no wonder that we cannot see that with our own eyes, with the normal physical eyes. To show how we can understand that, often the analogy with a fan is used. If you have a fan turning on full speed, then it actually looks like a disc that is turning. Like these fans here up on the ceiling. If they would turn a bit faster, then it just would look like a disc. That's what we normally, uh, that's how we normally would see things. But then when you slow down the fan, then you come to realize that it is not a disc up there, but that it is maybe three or four plates which are turning. Then you could see the space in between the blades. And if the fan is turning very, very slowly, then you clearly can see the three or four blades. And you even could put your hand in between into the empty space. So, like the blades of a fan, each piece of um, matter consists of a mass of very small uh, parts or units that are changing with an incredible speed. And because this happens so fast to our normal eyes, it looks like a solid, firm thing. Another example that you can take is a row of ants. If a row of ants crosses the path, then from afar it might look like a twig that is lying over the path or like a rope. But then when we get closer, we actually see that it is moving somehow not so stable and firm and when we go very close then we can see it's not a rope, it's not a twig but it's a row of ants and so we can make out each single ant. So all the processes in the body and in the mind happen in the same manner. Even the mind, mental processes are happening like that, arising and disappearing one after the other with incredible speed. The so-called thought is not something that can take from a few seconds to many minutes, but even a thought 
is composed of many, many thought moments which arise and disappear one after the other in succession. And so, to us, it looks like a constant flow of this thought. So when it is said that we need to understand this characteristic of impermanence or change, instability, we have to understand it on that subtle level. In the Visuddhimagga commentary, uh, it is said in this way, impermanence means arising, disappearance, and becoming different of things, or the disappearance of things that have arisen. The meaning is that the meaning is that these things never stay the same, but vanish by dissolving from moment to moment. The insight into the constant arising and disappearing of phenomena is needed to make progress on our spiritual path. As I said, this incessant arising and disappearance of phenomena on the microscopic level is very difficult to see for an untrained mind. And so the mind of an untrained person who has never practiced vipassana meditation assumes that this body or this mind is a permanent and solid thing or entity. And so we live with a distorted idea or assumption. So the consequence is that we live with a deceptive illusion that is created by our ignorant mind. Here I want to give you another example to illustrate this point. Imagine a steel beam. A steel beam is something that we considered considered to be very solid, to be very hard, to be very firm. And imagine that the steel beam forms the basis on which a house is built. So, seeing this steel beam or touching it, it really gives us the impression of being something very solid, very firm, very strong. But then, on the other hand, we also know that like every material thing, this beam is made up of atoms. And we know that atoms consist of a nucleus with protons and neutrons and electrons, which turn around the nucleus with an incredible speed. So to get, to get the sense for the spatial relation between <coughs> the nucleus 
and the electron or the whole atom, imagine that the nucleus of this atom is a football in the middle of a football field. And then imagine uh, a golf ball, that's the electron, which is turning around the nucleus and the radius um, <coughs> of its turning around is like the football stadium and it turns around the nucleus with thousands of kilometers um, per hour. And so when you have this um, picture of you, the football in the middle of the football field, in the middle of the stadium, and then this golf ball zooming uh, around it in a radius of the football stadium, this is what an atom consists of. So you see, it's mostly space. And it's said that 99.99% of the atom consists of space. And if all matter consists of atom, atoms, it follows that all matter is also 99.99% space. So there is not much solidity. And not only matter, this chair, this table, is made up mostly of space, but also your body. That's also a material phenomenon. So this steel beam only seems so solid in the same way as a fast-turning fan gives the impression of a solid disk. When the fan is turning very slow, we can see the space in between. So, if the electrons of this steel beam would stop moving around the nucleus, then the steel beam would immediately disappear. It just would dissolve into nothing. Nothing of it would be left. And so, if also all the electrons in the other parts of what we consider the house would stop turning, would stop moving, then again the whole house would dissolve into nothing. It just would vanish like this. There would be no rubbish left, no rubble, nothing. The impermanent nature or the changing nature also manifests yet in another area, namely in our life. Our life, too, is impermanent. In other words, we are mortal. Although we are aware of the fact that we have to die one day, we do not fully and deeply understand this fact because Otherwise, the death of a dear person, of a beloved person, 
would not lead to so much grief and sorry and worries, or our own approaching death would not lead to mental anguish and affliction. When people die far away from us, then usually we do not fall into a state of deep grief or uh, mental suffering. But if a very close and dear person dies, very often people are overwhelmed by quite big mental suffering. But we know that nothing is as sure in our lives as our own death and the death of our fellow people, of our fellow human beings, as well as every sentient being. This change will happen if we want it or not. Life is quite uncertain, but death is certain. All that is born has naturally to pass away, to die. There is no substance in the whole universe that is indestructible. With birth, we automatically get the ticket to die. Unfortunately, maybe luckily, we cannot choose if we want to be mortal or immortal at the time of our birth. Last year, when I went to the Schwedagon Pagoda in Yangon to buy some little pictures of different pagodas and different Buddha statues, then the lady from the shop, she gave me a little card as a present. On this little card, of the size of a credit card, on one side, there were two faces. One face was a smiley picture with a smile. The other face was an angry face, like that. And below it was written um, that one should go through the day, go through one's life like this, the smiley, and not like that, not with an angry face. And it also said that being a smiley or going through life with a smiling face um, makes one happy and peaceful, whereas going through life with lots of anger makes one suffering and feel miserable. And then on the back of this little card, um, it was said that one can die any time. Death is very certain, it will come sooner or later. And therefore, that one should make the best out of one's life, that one should lead a meaningful life. And it also had a list showing how many days one had already lived and how many days uh, were remaining 
and this list was based on an average lifespan of 75 years. So then it said, for example, if you are 20 years old, then you have already lived 7,300 days. And in that case, the remaining days of your life would number 20,075. If you are 40, then you have already lived 14,600 days. And the remaining days of your life number 12,775. For a person who is sick, many of you might have heard of King Asoka, who was a great king in the 3rd century BC. His empire was almost the whole Indian subcontinent. First, when he became king, he was well known and people were well afraid of him because he was a great warrior king. So we said, he conquered many parts of the Indian subcontinent. So he was very cruel and very successful. But then later, actually he came to realize what unwholesome karma he was creating. And so he turned over a new leaf. He embraced Buddhism and he became a very compassionate and wise ruler. His social welfare program was quite remarkable. For example, along the road he built shelters, rest houses, so that people who were traveling uh, had a shelter to spend the night. Or another thing that he initiated were even hospital for animals. Or he planted trees along the road so that travelers uh, could walk in the shade of these trees and did not have to walk in the hot, burning sun. His addicts were um, cast on stone pillars and some of them are um, we can still, still see nowadays for example there is one stone pillar in Lumbini marking the place where the Buddha was born and although King Asoka embraced Buddhism he granted religious freedom in his kingdom so people could believe what they wanted. He didn't force people uh, to convert to Buddhism. So he was a truly compassionate and wise ruler. He had a younger brother and his younger brother was a bit jealous of his elder brother who was so powerful ruling over such a vast 
in Pyle. And the younger brother's jealousy grow, grow stronger and he imagined how it would be if he were the king of that vast empire. And so his desire to become king grew stronger and stronger and sometimes he would sneak past the throne room, look inside, if King Asoka was not there, if nobody was there, and then would go up to the throne, sit on the throne, and imagine how wonderful it would be if he were the king. And finally he planned to overthrow the king his brother. But, as in all palaces, walls have ears and keyholes have eyes. So his plans were soon discovered and also King Asoka found out or was told. And so he ordered his younger brother to come to him. And then King Asoka told his younger brother, you know, all your plans have been discovered and because of that you are punished by death. In seven days your head will be chopped off. And the younger brother went all pale and his knees started trembling and he begged for mercy. And King Asoka said, well, because I'm your brother and because I'm a compassionate king, I let you have your wish fulfilled for these last seven days of your life. Actually, it's quite timely. Anyway, I would like to retire and do a little retreat. So, I'll go off and meditate and you can be the king for seven days. All is yours. The palace, the luxury, the good food, the dancing girls, whatever luxury I enjoy as a king is yours. There is just one thing. You cannot leave the palace. You must stay inside the palace. There will be guards all around with swords and knights who will protect the palace. So then King Asoka went to meditate and the younger brother was the king. After one week, the king came out of his retreat and ordered his younger brother to come. And so then he asked, Well, how did it go? Did you enjoy being king? Did you like it? And the younger brother said, <laughs> no, 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 no. And King Asoka asked, well, what went wrong? Weren't the dancing girl beautiful? Wasn't the food delicious? Wasn't the wine intoxicating? And the power, wasn't it great? And the younger brother said, <laughs> no, not really. 
well, what happened? Tell me. And so the younger brother said, you know, each time I was starting to enjoy the food or the dancing girls or whatever, then I would look up and I would see one of the soldiers at the gate or at the window and then I would remember only five more days, only three more days, only one more day and then all this comes to an end and my head will be chopped off. Then King Asoka said, Well, my younger brother, you have learned your lesson. Your execution will be called off. You are reprieved. So although King Asoka's brother was reprieved from the death sentence, he was not reprieved from death. His situation was exactly the same. He could die any time. Life is so uncertain. Life is so fragile. It doesn't need much, even if he feels strong and healthy. All of a sudden, he might get a stroke or a blow or an accident which cuts off our life. So the Buddha did not denigrate his human life, but he stressed that he actually should make use of his human life in the best possible way. Change, impermanence, or instability are facts of life that we cannot deny. And they exist independent of our wishes or ideas. If we are able to live in harmony with these characteristics, then we will not encounter big problems or unsurmountable uh, obstacles. It's only through our constant and actually useless attempt to make things permanent or stable that we are prone to so much suffering and misery. Once a Buddhist monk said, All I have learned in the 20 years that I have been a monk, I can sum up in one sentence. All that arises passes away. This I know for sure. So what this monk meant was of course that he had learned to offer no resistance to the permanent change of things. That he had learned to accept things as they are, and to live in harmony with this uh, impermanent nature of things. And living in harmony with it, his mind found peace. So impermanence or change is not something that we need to fight or that uh, we should try to make otherwise. 
Rather, it is something that we need to accept and that we need to deeply understand. When our, our, when our understanding of impermanence and change is deep and authentic, it will bring about an inner transformation and with that transformed mind we will look at the world with a different attitude. And so, as a result, the changing and impermanent nature of things is not any longer a threat to our happiness and peace, but rather the understanding of the impermanent and changing nature becomes an ally in our endeavor to achieve lasting happiness and eternal peace. So, I would like to finish this talk with the famous verse that is often recited at Buddhist funerals. You might uh, know it. Anicavata Sankara Upada Vayadamino Upachitvani Ruchanti Impermanent are all conditioned phenomena. They arise and disappear. Having arisen, they cease to be. Their cessation is true happiness. May all of you be able to understand the impermanent, changing and instable nature of things and attain to Nibbana, become fully liberated.